Welcome to Glorious Professionals brought to you by Goruk Media. Today, our guest is Congressman Michael Waltz from Florida's 6th District, which is just south of us at Goruk headquarters. The Congressman is also a Colonel in Special Forces, author of Warrior Diplomat, A Green Beret's Battles from Washington to Afghanistan, and longtime supporter of the Green Beret Foundation, which is how we met several years ago. In addition to serving at the tip of the spear in Afghanistan, Congressman Waltz served as a policy advisor in the Bush White House. So he brings the perspective of a servant leader at both the tactical and the strategic levels. As this podcast takes inspiration from the service of the glorious amateurs of the OSS during World War II and the choir professionals, the Green Berets currently serving as warrior diplomats at the tip of the spear, the good congressman is exactly the kind of person whose story and perspective we like to share. Mr. Congressman, I'm here with Richard Rice. Thank you for being on the show with us. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Hey, and thanks so much for everything you've done, Jason, uh, with, with Go Rock and, and really not being a victim. You know, we've all suffered mentally and physically from these wars and you bootstrapped it and just built a great company. I was, I was an entrepreneur as well and I uh, have nothing but respect for you, brother, for everything you've done and really being a, a leader in the community. Well, thanks so much. And uh, I, I appreciate that. You know, the, the respect from our community and just that, that has meant everything to me since the beginning. And so it's a real honor to get to chat with you. How is this affecting your kind of day-to-day -day ability to serve the good people of Florida's sixth congressional district? Well, it's, uh, you know, aside from the obvious in terms of the distancing and having my staff at first, it really is, I think, kind of going big to small, big in terms of other legislative priorities and other things that I was trying to get done this year. Obviously, everything is focused now on on fighting this two-front war with this virus, you know, the one front on the public health and the other front on the economic. And so everything else has been put aside. Uh, we're still making some baby steps on some initiatives, but that's, I think that's been the biggest effect. And then the other, like so many of us, is I am a big believer, we all learned this in the military, on getting down on the ground with the troops. And for me, that's being in the district, going and visiting businesses and uh, people that I'm serving. I have a theory that's kind of a, a, a riff off of undercover boss, but I call it undercover congressman where I go in and bed in, uh, you know, I've done it as a postal worker out delivering mail. I've done it as a UPS delivery man. I've done it in Chick-fil-A and diners and pizzerias to just really, you know, get, get down with, uh, with folks and understand their day-to-day -day struggles and, and successes in life. So all of that is put on hold while we fight this thing. Your, your perspective to being a congressman reminds me of exactly how a Green Beret would approach kind of a, a wartime situation, community building and getting out there with the folks. And, you know, you have this tactical background. Before you, before you were, uh, you know, wearing your, your suit and tie and all that stuff to, it, it, on the Hill, I mean, you're, you're a Green Beret in combat in, in Afghanistan on the tactical side. So you bring this this real perspective, what are, what are the tactical lessons that you learned and then applied as a Green Beret on the ground? Well, yeah, thanks. I think one of them, and you know, this is, this is how Green Berets are different really from any other military element in the world is that while other special operations may focus on finding and fixing and killing our enemies, Green Berets focus on finding our friends. 
and then enabling them in, in kind of a, a force multiplier way to, to take care of the nation's business for us. So applying that same kind of buy with and through methodology, for me, it is how can I support others and enable them, whether it's through better training or better resources uh, or more money, you name it, to, to kind of take care of the business of this virus for us. And that's with the hospital workers on our front lines, that's with first responders, um, that's with our, our logistics and supply chain. So, it, you know, the other piece that with a good Green Beret, like you said, is you, you can't figure that all of that out from satellite imagery or from studying maps. You have to get in, uh, whether it's in the villages over in Africa and Afghanistan or now down in my community in Florida, you have to get down in there and you have to walk the walk and talk the talk with them, with those folks. So. Last week, I, I did a ride-along with the Daytona Beach police chief, and, and just to hear and see and touch firsthand, not too much touching, touching keeping our social distance, of course, <laughs> but uh, you know what I mean in terms of what their issues are. And so I think that's the methodology that I apply, and that's what I want to bring back to legislating. Um, it's one thing to have these kind of high-in-the-sky policies. You know, and we're throwing around sums of money that no human can really wrap their mind around. I mean, uh, a trillion dollars could literally take dollar bills to the moon and back, and you still wouldn't have a trillion. So, you know, you could have those kind of ideological fights, um, but I think you kind of get lost without understanding how those programs are executed and then bringing that on-the-ground knowledge back to D.C., and that's what I seek to do. So sort of on, on the tactical side, though, right, because we're kind of in the early, it, we're in crisis mode, right, of, of sorts. And, and you have leaders like yourself that are trying to, to, to weigh this kind of crisis tactical gunfight, to, to pull out that kind of an analogy with, okay, well, yeah. where is the war going? Now, if we sort of start and parallel your career, I mean, you, you found yourself in, I know you lost dear teammates. Right. I mean, you, you're no stranger to, sure. to sacrifice. You're, you're no stranger to you're no stranger to this kind of a situation. And so how do you approach the absolute tactical side? Not the, hey, I'm a congressman and I'm going to I'm going to focus on, you know, this type of legislation and that type of legislation. But if you're if you're fighting the fight like all Americans are right now, you know, especially places like New York City, what's the kind of mindset? decision-making problems, yeah. you know, decision-making process, triage that, that you bring to these kinds of, of situations? Well, I think first is understanding where the center of gravity is, right? I mean, that's one of the first courses, you, you know, first kind of concepts you learn in, um, in officer basics. And, uh, and same thing, and, you know, for our Green Berets listening out there, the Carver Matrix, right? You know, what is that key element that I think everything else could revolve around? And for me, kind of tactically on this, yeah, we're going to have the blocking and tackling of people that are sick, uh, the huge effort to make sure that our first responders and others uh, have the, the protective equipment that they need so they don't get, you know, they don't in turn get sick and we lose that critical asset. You know, all, all of those different pieces. But for me, the center of gravity is testing. And we, we won't be able to get back to kind of quote unquote normalcy until we get mass testing in place. That's what the South Koreans were able to do very quickly. Uh, we stumbled in doing that for a variety of reasons. Uh, same thing uh, in Hong Kong and Singapore. And you look at places, 
that have been able to, to deal with this ish, issue, keep the, the number of deaths low, not have their hospital systems overwhelmed, and uh, not completely drop the bottom out of their economy. It's been because they were able to deploy testing uh, very in a, in a very broad fashion and a very quick fashion. And that's, that's the piece that kind of tactically I'm focused on out on the ground is where we're doing testing, how are we doing it, what's the supply chain, and then what can I do to facilitate it? And that's, that's using that center of gravity analysis. Right. So you're getting at the sort of resources game as well and the balance that's associated with that. You know, from, from your, your book, you said, you know, my goal in writing this book is to explain the errors we've made and how, how the war in Afghanistan has been executed. Despite the best of intentions, our militaries and government's management of this war has been deeply flawed. Frankly, the effectiveness of our policies has not been worthy of the sacrifices of men like Brian Woods, Matt Pacino, and thousands like them who are no longer with us. I firmly believe that historians will point to five key mistakes as they examine the effort in Afghanistan to explain why we have had such difficulty there. Number one, the chronic lack of resources to stabilize the country. NATO's shortcomings in the Iraq war were important subsets. Two, an ill-defined overall strategy for success. Three, risk aversion in the execution of operations. Four, our inability to deal with the Taliban sanctuary in Pakistan. And five, declaring the 2014 withdrawal years in advance. So you, you outlined those at the, at the strategic level. And as I was rereading your book, I mean, we're going to be judged in by so many ways, the same things. I mean, wars are beans and bullets and, you know, where, where you can speed up and, and if testing is the center of gravity, how do we, how are we going to write the book in, in the future as we look back on what we're doing right now? You know, great question. And I'm not sure that we can quite give the answer yet. Um, you know, we literally, you know, use that analogy or right in the aftermath of 9-11 and uh, are still, as you said, kind of in the knife fight reaction mode. Uh, I, I fortunately had the benefit or the dubious, I think, distinction of, of writing mine about 10 years into the war. So I, I did have some perspective looking backwards uh, in terms of the, the war on terror. But in this one, I think first thing you're going to see and looking back is that we didn't understand in the very earliest stages truly the gravity of what we were dealing with. And, and I am utterly convinced that that's because of duplicity on the part of the Communist Party of China and, uh, and, and frankly, some of its allies in international health organizations, particularly the WHO, uh, which the Chinese have managed to kind of stack the deck in terms of leadership for a variety of reasons. But I think it's first and foremost to this day, uh, months into this now, uh, the CDC and WHO scientists have not been allowed into ground zero. They don't fully understand the full genetic makeup and they don't have all the data to understand how this thing's spreading and its origin, which is critical for creating antivirals, creating vaccines, and then putting effective uh, policies in place. So, you know, it, it really, the, the initial indications that we received were that this was uh, localized spread. So that means, you know, they weren't seeing mass and very fast community spread and that it was only episodically going from animal to human and uh, or much less human to human, which is the big kind of red flag indicator. So I think so far that is going to be one piece as historians look back on that. And then the second piece, so far, is 
the stumbles in terms of getting our testing regime in place. Uh, the South Koreans, by contrast, very quickly uh, being on the heels uh, or looking back at how they dealt with SARS in 2009, uh, knew that immediately they would have to go to mass testing and immediately went to the private sector and, and didn't let perfect be the enemy of good. They knew the tests were maybe a little bit flawed and they were taking some risks by pushing them out that quickly. But the net gain far outweighed the loss. Us, the United States, on the other hand, the government, uh, the CDC in particular, tried to develop its own test. You know, they, they tried to do everything internally and then come to find out they lost weeks in developing it. But then also even more weeks in finding out that the test was highly flawed. Meanwhile, the FDA, uh, we have the best healthcare system in the world. That's one of the reasons is because the Food and Drug Administration is extremely kind of scrupulous and exacting on everything it approves. Well, in, in a case of an emergency where speed is paramount, I think that works against us. So I think those are two key things from the get-go. And then I'd say just one quick uh, third piece was that our stockpile wasn't prepared for a pandemic. I think as you look back on this, we will find out that our national stock, you know, we always fight. We know this in the military that we always fight the last war. We're always focused on what yep. we weren't prepared for last time. And the stockpile was prepared for a, a, a bioterror attack, like an anthrax attack that we experienced in the wake of 9-11, where you could surge a lot of resources at one single location. And uh, it was not prepared for a nationwide, much less global pandemic like this. And then I have one more quick one. I'm, they're kind of coming to me as I'm, as I'm thinking of it, is our global supply chain issues. Uh, I don't know that people were looking at that in the sense of the effect on a pandemic, but I know, myself included, many were looking at our over-dependence on everything from aluminum to shipping to medical supplies to pharmaceuticals on certain countries, one of which in China is an adversary, uh, you know, the impact that could have in a national security environment. We've seen in other instances where China has threatened to close off certain minerals. Uh, in one case, it did with, uh, in a dispute with Japan as retribution uh, in the midst of a dispute. And that gave me and others alarm. Uh, and now I think this is really painfully coming to the front of the national conscience. So you know full well what the Berry Amendment is, right? It, it mandates that a lot of DOD stuff comes from domestic manufacturers and is domestically sourced. Do you see something like that needed for, for the healthcare industry? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I've already introduced legislation. So I'm, I'm on that one and co-introduced that with Senator Rubio that would uh, essentially better define and reinstate the Buy America Act. The problem is the court had ruled that Buy America was where the Department of Defense, the federal government, national stockpiles have to source American, but they defined that kind of air quotes sourcing as assembled in the United States. And we are going to redefine that with this legislation as the raw ingredients, particularly for pharmaceuticals, have to be sourced in the United States. So that's an important uh, distinction, and, and Jason, that's already underway. We're, uh, we're, we're going to get that done. That is one among many things. Uh, that's great to hear. So to, to go back, kind of this, this separation between the lack of resources and ill-defined strategy, I'm, I'm really into this, these parallels between the way that you took the AAR on, on Afghanistan and, and this. And I know we're in the middle of it, 
I think the framework still works though, right? I mean, the lack of resources, I mean, they're just kind of, what I'm hearing is we don't necessarily have a lack of resources. We just have the wrong resources or we didn't apply them quickly enough. Should have gone to the, to the business sector faster, not so much the government, right? Yeah, that's right. It's really looking, I mean, and, and this, this is frankly just a flaw of government and a bureaucrat, which I've been dealing with my entire career is if you have the private sector out there doing what you're supposed to do, then, you know, what do you have your job for, right? And the measure of success in a bureaucracy is more people and more money spent on on your department or your agency. Uh, so there's just, that doesn't make them bad people. It's just the incentives that are in play. So, you know, if the agencies tasked with developing these tests suddenly turn to the private sector, well, that's essentially you know, probably saying in the future that maybe it should just be outsourced and your agency shouldn't exist. I'm speculating, but just knowing how bureaucracies think, I think that's part of what was at play. Uh, but there, in my mind, it, it was it was frankly just a mistake, number one, that government sought to develop it itself, uh, even though we saw this kind of tidal wave uh, virus coming. And then two, the one it did develop didn't work. Uh, and, and it took weeks, you know, we lost even further weeks trying to correct it. And then finally, we've gone out of the private sector and you're seeing the innovation, uh, with Abbott Labs and their five minute test and with other, uh, types of testing for, with Roche and other companies. If, you know, one could only speculate, but if we have done that six, eight weeks ago, where would we be today? We'd, I think we'd be in a much better place. At a really, the broadest level possible, like what should our strategy be right now? on the, the, the shock of the aftermath of this pandemic? And then how, how should we be thinking about walking that forward as, as a nation and, and just as, as a collection of, of people as well? Well, that's a great question. That's kind of where is this going you know, in the near term and in the medium term? How do we, how do we get out of this? Uh, I've already you know, kind of talked at length about the need for testing. The other piece of that is, employer liability. And I think that shoe is about to drop, unfortunately, in a big way. We're already seeing the first lawsuits come out against companies. There was one against Illinois, I mean, against uh, Walmart, uh, Walmart in Illinois, where, you know, folks were sick or folks uh, sadly died or their relatives died. And there's suits being uh, levied against employers for not having the right protective equipment in place. Maybe they didn't send everybody home as quickly as the plaintiffs thought they should, or a variety of other reasons. I think that is, we can't have a situation where we reopen the economy, and then it comes with a flood of, of lawsuits along with it, because the virus is going to kind of, I think, ebb and flow in terms of raising its ugly head. What does everything look like going forward? The bigger picture, I think it looks like it looks bottoms up. I mean, America fundamentally is a bottoms up uh, society and nation. And you're seeing, and for example, in the case of Florida, a very different experience in, say, the Panhandle in North Florida than you are in Broward County and Miami. Uh, more broadly, you're seeing a different experience in rural America and Wyoming and Montana than you are seeing in the inner city in downtown New York. So I think we're going to have to make a lot of these decisions on more of a county-by-county, county, even zip-code-by-zip-code zip code basis and eventually at a statewide basis of when we open up and where. Uh, but that, again, is going to have to be accompanied by by a lot of point-of-care testing so that people have the confidence to go back to work and interact uh, with each other. 
And you're going to see, you're also going to have to see kind of constant monitoring uh, and, and tracing so that you know if you're having a second wave or a flare up in a, uh, in a certain situation. So I think it's going to be touch and go. But at the end of the day, we do have to start releasing some of the stranglehold on our economy. We just, businesses, individuals, uh, our supply chain just can't uh, withstand this kind of mass shutoff for much longer. Right. So let's go then to the, to the third point that you brought up about risk aversion. And so this is, this is a really big one here. I mean, in, in our background, what you learn is that in matters of violence, speed is, is security. It's violence and speed of action are, are what you want in, in the most dangerous of times, right? There's inherent risk to that. The risk of inertia can be really bad too. You sort of let the world run its course on you. And that's not really what you want, right? You want to be able to take charge of a situation as much as you can. And with that has risk. So right, to bring up your earlier example, if, if every Walmart in the country shuts down because of a class action lawsuit, because of whatever reason, and I don't want to bring up the specifics of any case, I haven't, they're, they're hard to track, but I've seen them all come in. I mean, yeah. what are the risks that we should be willing to take? And yet, how are we smart about those? Because Green Berets train so hard to, to know how to mitigate those risks. And we've got, you know, over right. 300 million Americans without this kind of training. So like, how do, you, how do we lead ourselves at, at the community level and maybe even at the national level toward where we need to go with the risks that we need to assume? How do we know right. what that should look like? Well, I think that's kind of a great application of how we think as Green Berets. What is, you know, why is our training up to two years and so many others, not to, not to denigrate our, our, our brothers and sisters in the, in the other specialties, but you know, it's much, much shorter. Right. And, and that is because often we seek to be the smartest operator on the battlefield, uh, not necessarily the toughest. We want to think our way through the problem rather than just fully our way through it. So in this case, again, it's having that operational picture so that we can make more nuanced uh, responses. So knowing and being able to understand down at, at if not the county level, uh, even down at the, at the zip code level, what this virus is doing and where it is, you know, the curve is on flat and stay there and decline and where it's rising. So I think that's the piece that we're going to have to better understand. Uh, and with that is going to come, uh, I think, better data on positive tests. You're going to have to have antibody testing, particularly for your, for your healthcare workers. You're going to need to have temperature checks everywhere, airports, restaurants, hospitals. Uh, and that way we can kind of, you know, in government adjust that dial. But without all of that, the risk aversion that you're, you're getting to is, you know, look, I'm a politician now, sadly sometimes. And, um, politicians are going to be extremely risk averse to, to put their neck out to release some of these restrictions, uh, without being able to, you know, really kind of have a picture of the area that they represent. And I think that's where risk aversion will continue to paralyze us. So Congressman Moltz, I mean, you're, you're someone in your district, you're living there, right? Put, put yourself in, in their shoes and it, it, there's broad applications to all of America here. Now, who should people be listening to? Because, you know, they, well, have, think, they have you as a representative, they have senators, they have the president, sure. they have the CDC, they have, you know, anything they read on, you know, any of their daily news sites, their stuff coming at people all over the place. Then they got their neighbor next door, right? And they're having driveway beers 
with, with each other. And, and that's where that's where the real conversations are happening. So who right. should people be be listening to? Well, look, I'll just show my conservative roots in that uh, I think where government really misses, you know, where the rubber meets the road is at the local level. Uh, and so I hope that we're all pretty much on the same sheet of music from your state reps to your congressmen and senators and, and down to your, your local officials. But you know, things are handled differently in Daytona or Jacksonville than they are in Montana or Alaska or downtown L.A. And so that I think we, you will see us moving from this kind of one-size-fits-all mass shutdown to much more nuanced phase of this in the coming week. And in that sense, to answer your question, I think you're more local officials. Uh, so, for example, we, we saw a big outcry on the beaches in Florida and closing the beaches and why aren't we? Um, and the governor, you know, often deferred to local officials to make those decisions because, you know, in South Beach, where you've got spring breakers crawling all over each other and having a great time, it's very different than a residential beach in the panhandle where someone just wants to go out and walk their dog and keep all the social distancing you want. So in, in a time of crisis, though, your question is, well, now that we I, I think we're going to move through in the next week or two through the peak. And then you're going to have peaks and valleys at a local level. And and that in that sense, I think we should listen to more local officials. Yeah. So th there is sort of a, a leadership transition, I would I would expect to see. I mean, our, our governor here, Governor DeSantis, is has not been his approval ratings are down. He's one of the few governors. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a time of crisis, if you take charge, people are starving for leadership. Now, right. what are the types of traits that people respond to? How should a leader really approach and tackle this problem in terms of how to lead the people? And, and if you want, you know, what's gone wrong here in Florida? Yeah, well, I think at a time of crisis, it's hard to over-communicate. Uh, and I, I think rather than having one a days or every couple of days, you know, press conferences, have two or three a day. Uh, that's what we do in hurricanes. Uh, and, and I think there's been a lot of kind of good feedback on how we handled Dorian and how uh, Tallahassee handled uh, Dorian. And so I don't know, and I don't want to speculate on why there's been some deviation from that model. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, communication, 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 be firm, be decisive, and, and most importantly, explain your decision. And so in that case, if you want to say, you know what, I think we should be tougher on our spring break prone beaches than on our residential beaches. And, you know, social, it's okay to go out and run, but it's not okay to go out and play a game of, you know, five on five pickup basketball when we're supposed to be distancing from each other. So I think it's just really going that extra mile to explain the reasoning behind your decisions. And that's often well received. Yeah. So we learned this in the military, right? When you were, you know, a young officer, or I was a young enlisted guy and they put you out, you know, your Bravo right rifle out there and you don't know anything, right? You hate that. It's the worst, it's the worst feeling to just always be looking around and not know, are we still going this direction? <laughs> yeah. Are we like, what's going on? You know, I don't know all that stuff. And, you know, they breed that out of you to never be like that in special forces. And so, you know, That's I right. think what there is, is there's kind of a call to community leaders to also project calm. That's one of the things where in times of crisis, the calmer you are, right? I mean, you're able to actually make decisions. The, the stress does not work in your favor. 
No, that's right. Well, and you know, in, in the special operations community, we want every single person fully understanding the mission and not just the mission and the reasoning behind it. So it's not just we're going to take the hill. It's why is that hill critical? And I think this is, you know, in the same way. And that's why I think you, you just cannot over communicate as an elected leader in, in a time of crisis. And that's probably why I'm doing seven, eight, nine radio and TV interviews a day because you know, people have a lot of questions and they ask questions that are very nuanced and particular to their lives. And we as, as elected representatives need to be there to help them answer it. And I, and you can't have too big of an ego to say you don't know when you don't know, but then follow up and get the answer back to it. So as we, as we sort of transition even more strategically, I know you're, you're focused in big ways. You're on the Armed Services Committee. You're focused on China. You're focused on America's sure. response to all of this. I mean, it's not something that I feel a lot of people are concerned with right at the moment because we're still in crisis, pandemic. Hey, there's no toilet paper mode, right? And so, you know, what should we be really looking out for for America's interests. I mean, how is this going to change us vis-a-vis specifically China? Because I know that's that's where you're you're focused on. Yeah, and that's completely understandable. People should, you know, they're focused on how they're going to pay their mortgage next month or their rent or how they're going to get their business back open, how they're going to keep their employees employed. And that is the, the kind of the, the fight here and now that, that I'm absolutely focused on with them. But also as a leader, you have to, take your head up once in a while and look over the horizon. And I think if there is a silver lining in all of this, uh, I hope it will be a 100% wake-up call for America uh, that China and the Chinese Communist Party, not the people, but the party, are in a Cold War uh, with the United States. It is deliberate. It's strategic. If you read uh, the direct man translations of President Xi's speeches, they are replete with Chinese dominance. The 21st century is the Chinese century sliding America aside as a fait accompli, as a global leader, and on and on. And they're doing it outside of the traditional military means. Uh, they're doing it by dominating markets, by co-opting international institutions like the UN uh, and the World Health Organization. Uh, they're doing it by, you know, for example, how they have cornered the global market on medical equipment is uh, they will open up Chinese businesses backed by the state uh, and, and essentially subsidy those businesses so that they can drop their prices to zero, put their global competitors, including American businesses, out of business, and then eat up market share for that entire uh, vertical. And that's whether it is minerals. Uh, they've done it in ports around the world. They own both sides of the Panama Canal, by the way, uh, to where they've denied Navy ships passage periodically uh, and, and, and a number of other uh, markets. So we have to wake up to it. Uh, and I think we have to begin treating this very differently. So case in point, uh, bio warfare. I am not saying that the Chinese released this virus on purpose. But what I, what I do know is they have the capability to do so, and it is built into their military planning to do so in case of a, a case of conflict. And so you look at the case of the Theodore Roosevelt, the aircraft carrier that's been sidelined from this virus. Me, as a representative on the Armed Services Committee, 
we're appropriating hundreds of billions of dollars in missile defense, yet uh, if they chose to do so, they could take out a strategic asset like an aircraft carrier by infecting a sailor. This is why the military, uh, the Pentagon is now barred uh, military members from participating in sites like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, these DNA sites, because the Chinese have been hacking them and mining them for military members' DNA data to further develop their offensive bio-warfare. So I think we are going to have to think about this Cold War that we're in completely differently. It is much more economic uh, and much more soft power focused from the Chinese uh, perspective. And that's why I'm already introducing legislation to begin insourcing some of our critical supply chains. Congressman, I'm glad to hear you say that because I've, for years, people have ignored the indicators of just the things you're talking about, cyber, bio, economic, and they've ignored right. that from the from the Chinese perspective, and they wanted to wash it away because we could still buy cheap iPhones. Well, that's absolutely right. And here's the new dynamic with China as an adversary that America has never faced ever in our, in our history is that we're facing an adversary with an economy that's as big as ours and a market that Wall Street really wants access to. So Wall Street and our multinationals have become addicted to cheap labor. Uh, and, and that's, you know, in many ways understandable because it makes them competitive on the global marketplace. But, and I'm a free market guy, I built a business myself. I'm very pro growth, but not at the expense of national security. And so what my message to Wall Street has been, look, if you want access to a billion person market, then we need to begin focusing on India. It's the world's largest democracy. It's in line with our values and it will be a powerful 21st century ally to contain the Chinese Communist Party and still be a very viable market for U.S. businesses and if they want to outsource some labor. But even then, we've seen when global supply chains get cut off, and we saw this even with India cutting exports of certain pharmaceuticals, we have to have an internal market that we can go to. Uh, and, and that's what the balance that we're going to be looking to strike going forward. But, but I 100% agree. This decoupling of our dependency on China and dependency on an adversary has to occur, and I think it will occur in the wake of this. So the hearts and minds that we have to win in, in this are internal, right? I mean, America, we can do anything we want if, if we're all in it together. And we need, we need more leaders like yourself to get out there and say this. I mean, your iPhone might cost 50 extra bucks. G get over it, right? right? I mean, you know, yep. everything that costs, you know, 49 cents at the, at the dollar store, maybe the dollar store, you know, it, it's the $10 store. Right. Is, is that so bad? How much stuff do we actually need all of the time at, at right. such rock well, bottom and prices? I think there's a, and Jason, I think there's a balance there. If you look, that's why you know, all of this stuff is so interconnected. But that's why negotiating a new NASA deal that was more uh, in, in tune with American manufacturing. But having that block of that North American block of, of Canada uh, the United States and Mexico aligned is incredibly powerful. Uh, that is, those are supply chains that, you know, we can deal with in times of crisis or in times of, of conflict or a pandemic. Uh, that's why getting that in place is so important. Having those supply chains in line with a democracy and with an ally where the president can pick up the phone and talk to the prime minister of Australia or, or India and, and move forward together is, is also so important. But yes, uh, 
I will continue to beat this drum. I think people need to understand it. Uh, and we may have to pay a little bit more, but at the same time, those are American jobs at the other end of that dollar. I think at the end of the day, we just had a very flawed approach to China. We thought capitalism would change China politically and that by pulling them into the global family, and the World uh, Trade Organization would eventually change their behavior politically. And we've seen that that is absolutely not the case. In fact, the Chinese Communist Party have used being members of those organizations and others to enhance themselves and deliberately to harm uh, what it sees as a competitor in the United States. And we, again, we just have to wake up to it and begin as a country and begin taking effective action. All right, Mr. Congressman, last question, because I know you're you're booked and all of that good stuff is just back to the folks out there, right? I mean, in, in your district, yeah. all over our state in Florida, and then you just kind of fan out across America. I mean, in times like these, the people are united. I mean, you can feel it in, in my neighborhood and just in, in chats with my friends, the people are united and they want strong, effective and calm leadership. And what is your advice or what's your, what's your parting words on the Glorious Professionals podcast to the folks out there who are looking for that kind of leadership? What, what should they be doing in, in their lives right now? Well, what I love, again, another silver lining of this is seeing Americans at a community level get over their differences and get out there and help each other. And and one of my missions, one of the reasons I ran for office is getting America back to a sense of service. How do we make America serve one another again? So this is really getting back to the mentality of the draft. Uh, even if we don't go to um, mandatory service again, I actually introduced a bill to incentivize national service. That's not necessarily in uniform, but that can be elderly care, national parks, different types of community service, uh, peace poor, you name it. But how do we get 18-year-olds off the couch and kind of off of their off of their video games and out serving one another again, uh, like the greatest generation did? One of the one of the good things about the draft was that it forced everybody together and you learned leadership, followership, teamwork, and then you went back into society with those life skills. And the important thing, Jason, that I think is overlooked is you did it with people that didn't look like you and didn't come from where you came from. So whether you were from downtown Detroit or a farm boy from West Indiana, you were all forced together at a young age uh, to serve a cause much bigger than yourself. It's about mission and it's about country. Uh, and this really came home to me when a veteran mentor of mine, a World War II veteran, used to tell me that the first black man he ever spoke to, the first African-American ever, uh, was his 19-year-old bunkmate in the Navy. And so this kind of, hey, let's overcome our differences and help through a crisis, I want to figure out a way to help that continue beyond uh, this crisis. And I think if we can do that and we can get back to that sense of service as Americans, despite our differences, we'll be a far better country uh, on the other side of all of this. Well, God bless you for fighting that fight. I know I speak for Rich as well. I mean, we'll fight that till our dying breath as well. So we're we're on the same team. And thanks for your leadership. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us today, sir. All right. Well, God bless and, and Deo Presto Libera, brother. Thanks. We'll chat with you soon. All right, Rich, what'd you think about the good congressman? I thought he made some excellent points. He talked about communication. And communication is one of the most important things that you can always have. The idea of keeping everyone informed and making sure that everyone knows where they're headed, what they're doing, what to expect whenever possible, 
and that reassurance to people that has occurred throughout critical times in our nation's history. What comes to mind is, of course, the greatest generation, World War II, and just prior to that, the, the Great Depression, that officials throughout America at their local levels, and the congressman very specifically talked about this, making sure that constituents within each local area understood what should and shouldn't be done, what could and couldn't be done. And then his comments on China and his observations of what has occurred in the past and what we need to be prepared for in the future. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in that that weird position now on at the community level where we're still looking for leadership at the national level. I mean, people are looking to the the gov- governor Cuomo in New York for what's what's going sure. on there because that's the epicenter. Sure. Right? And so that's going to that's going to spread out And I think that I haven't heard it said like this, but what he was getting at was if you're a community leader, lead. Right, exactly. And and, and you need to be the voice of calm in your own community and and take that back to your family. Your family, your business, whatever it might be. Yeah. Be the voice of calm and and just attack the problem methodically and, you know, slow is smooth, smooth is fast sometimes. We got to let the situation develop, but you are allowed to stay calm. And understand that you are probably going to, not hit every key just right. You're going to miss a few points, but that's okay. You're still going to move down the road with what needs to be done in a calm manner, in an, a manner that I won't say is aggressive, but that gets the job done. Yeah. I mean, there's this idea that he brought up about don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Exactly. I mean, if, if you wait till tomorrow every day when you have more information, then you're not putting people at ease with the, the information that you can share. Exactly. And if you're in a position of, of leadership, then take charge. Communicate to your family that you're going to be okay. Or look at the basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Sure. Food, water, shelter, stuff mm-hmm. like that. I mean, right. we're, we're doing pretty well. I mean, we've never been able to go through this kind of quarantine so well. Exactly. Some perspective does really matter. So look, I think the the congressman, I've known him for several years now. He's always donated very generously in, in time and money to the Green Bray Foundation. And I've I've enjoyed my time with him over the years. So it was pretty cool. The backstory on how this came about was I got an email from the Green Beret Foundation that was highlighting the work that that Green Berets are doing out there. And the congressman in Congress, he's the first Green Beret ever elected to Congress, which is pretty cool. And he was mobilized in his role in, in the military to go to FedEx Field and set up testing sites and all that stuff. And so I reached out and this is what is bringing out the best. This situation, the silver lining, is that we're reaching out to old friends. And you know, I chatted with him today, just chatting with him. I'm like, okay, I feel better. I mean, there, there are people thinking about the right things. And, you know, don't get too distracted by a D or an R in front of somebody if we ever bring them on and they're a politician, okay? Try to cut through a lot of that and just get to what the person is about and what they're talking about and their kind of way of life, how they're approaching problems, what are the questions that they're asking. I mean, I guarantee you we'll have a Democrat on here sometime soon, right? 
as soon if you know a Democrat that's in Congress or something like that, that was maybe a SEAL or whatever the case may be, well, we'd love to have them on, right? So we are we're maintaining some some distance on that, but really wanna wanna take what people say. And and I thought that his his points, he was he did a really good job. Uh, he did a great job and and he was very very specific in some things and and very general in others. And that's understandable because there's some things that we still don't know that he doesn't know, but he's out there doing yeoman's work to get things done for America, working for the nation and working for his district. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, if this were different, maybe different times, we would have gone a little bit more into the, the war stories part of it. You know, he's Special Forces community is a small community, and he's lost a couple guys, you know, on his his deployments that were really dear to him on on his deployment. And you know, his book details a lot of that. So, leadership in in a time of crisis is something that he he very much lived. And so, I'm glad we've got him out there now. Check out his book if you want. It's Warrior Diplomat. You can find it everywhere. And thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate your listening.